You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Uh, We're continuing our study of the Psalms this summer. I think we have another uh, two months left and then we'll be going into something else. Uh, We're going to be coming back to the Psalms in the future, I'm sure. Uh, This has been too much fun. But yeah, we've been having our affections stirred towards Christ. Uh, just stirred up towards Jesus as we consider these beautiful songs and these poems that the Holy Spirit has inspired for our benefit. I love the Psalter. Um, I've gained more and more of an appreciation for it the longer that I'm a Christian. Uh, But tonight, like I said, we're in Psalm 110. Uh, This is an incredibly important psalm. Uh, I've, I've read some commentators argue that this is the most important psalm in the entire Psalter, and in it contains the gospel in its entirety uh, concerning the Lord Jesus. Um, some people like to joke around. I thought this was kind of a corny preacher thing. Uh, some people like to joke around and say that Psalm 110 verse 1 is God's favorite verse, right? Adorable. And they say that because uh, the first verse of this psalm is the most frequently quoted, to, quoted and alluded to Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. Right? Psalm 110 verse 1 is quoted 23 times. In 11 out of 27 New Testament books by seven of the nine New Testament authors. Right? This psalm is super important, especially verse 1. We really want to get a good understanding of this psalm because it applies so much to Christ. Right? Like I just said, this psalm uh, is a psalm that is directly about Jesus. It, it's, a, it's a prophecy of sorts about the Messiah's future blessed position of king, as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a passage that declares Jesus' eternal kingship, his eternal priesthood, and his authority to judge the nations and his future victory. So my goal this evening in in preaching this to you is not to have you guys leave here with things that you ought to, to change about yourselves. All right, that's the goal in some passages and even in some psalms that you can see your own sinfulness um, and, and see what needs amended by God's grace in your life. But this is not one of those texts. This psalm is really not about us, except for like one verse. All right, this psalm is not about us. My goal this evening is to purely and proudly exalt Christ. That's, that's always my goal, but especially in this psalm, just to exalt the Lord Jesus and to help you all see him enthroned as King of Kings. All right, often... We tend to only think of Christ with regard to his earthly ministry of life, death, and resurrection on our behalf to save us. And that's great. I want you guys to be thinking of that regularly, right? The righteousness of Christ given to you, the death of Christ applied to you, all of that stuff. But we can never forget Christ's role as king. Never forget that. Never forget that Christ is king. It is his eternal position as Lord and king that encourages us as his people. Right? So the people of God should love to remember and think on the truth that their suffering Savior, their once suffering Savior, is now enthroned in glory and splendor forever. This should bring a smile to our face to consider that our once suffering Savior is now King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, so this evening, for the next 40 minutes or so, let's get our eyes off of ourselves and, and whatever may or may not be going on in our lives, whatever is going on, let's get our eyes off of that and focus our eyes on the truth that Christ is King. Christ is King. Because this is going to lead us to find renewed joy in the triumph of our God and King. 
So here's our big idea. If you're a note taker, here it is. After his work of redemption, Christ has been crowned. He is king and priest forever, and he will receive everything he deserves. I love that. Without any more for introduction, Psalm 110. And as we like to note, the, the little introductory thing before the first verse telling you who wrote the psalm, that's actually inspired, right? The English translators didn't put that in. It's actually part of the Hebrew text. That's really important for us this evening. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and, 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 the, and the blessings that you pronounce over your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him and dying for us. We thank you for crowning him as king. Lord, I pray that you would let us see in, in the eyes, with the eyes of our hearts to see Christ enthroned as king, to see him receive his reward for his suffering, that we might rejoice for him and rejoice in him. Grant that to us this evening. And Lord, if there are any unbelievers among us this evening, I pray that you would draw them to know this king. Please bless us and do a work of grace in our hearts this evening. Help us to see what you're saying in this text. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we saw in the introduction right to the psalm, a psalm of David. Right? So King David, we need to get this right off the rip. King David wrote this psalm. Right? While he was king, he wrote this. And in the first line, he says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now up there, I'm sure it didn't capitalize the first word Lord. Like it didn't have all caps, L-O-R-D. Right? But what it actually says in Hebrew is Yahweh says to my Adonai. Right? Which means God, we know this as New Testament believers looking back at this text. God, the Father, says to my sovereign. That's what Adonai means. That, that one just capital L, Lord. My Adonai, my sovereign, my master, my king. So David is saying, God says to his sovereign, someone who has authority over David. Now, again, as I just said, when David wrote this, he's king of Israel. Humanly speaking, David has no Lord but God. He's king of the people of God. There is no higher position for a human being to attain in this life than to be king over the covenant people of God. Right, especially under the Old Covenant. David, there is no one higher than him. But here, in this first verse, David speaks of someone who is distinct from God the Father, but who also has authority over David. 
which would tell us that this person that God is talking to also must have divine qualities because there is no other person that David could say, this person has authority over me because he's king. So again, David speaks of someone who is distinct that the father speaks to who also has authority over David, which tells us that there is a sovereign, a king to come whom David calls Lord who will rule over even the king of Israel, even David. And this lets us know right off the bat that this psalm is a messianic psalm, right? Meaning it's about the Messiah who was to come. And this was widely accepted, right? Since Christ has come and like rabbinic Judaism has taken over, Jewish people like to say that Psalm 110 is not actually about the Messiah, but only ever uh, applied to Israel's earthly king. That's nonsense. Historically speaking, all Jews pretty much agreed that this text is about the Messiah who was to come. Even in Jesus' day, whenever he quotes it in Matthew uh, 21, verses 41 through 46, the Pharisees don't dispute that fact that Jesus says this psalm is about the Messiah. All right, So I just want you to know that this psalm is all about the Messiah. And Jesus, in that Matthew 20, chapter 21, Jesus applies this psalm to himself. And in doing so, Jesus claims that he is the one who was to come from David's line, who is also David's Lord. Some of my favorite things that the Bible calls Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. That's referring back to Psalm 110. He's the son of God, the Messiah who was promised. So this psalm, I just wanted to get this, is all about Jesus. I just wanted to prove that to you right off the rip because don't believe what I say. Believe what the Bible says because I can be wrong, but the Bible's not. But we should also note, before we actually jump into this first verse, that this is a coronation psalm. This is beautiful. This is really important for us. This is a coronation psalm. It would be sung over the king of Israel at his crowning, or whenever he's anointed king of Israel, it would be sung over him. But you'll notice, if you read this passage again, that none of the things that are said here could really ever truly be said about any king before Jesus. Never could really be said about anyone but Jesus. So this psalm, the best I can understand, as the people of Israel sing it whenever a new king is crowned, it was meant to point the ones who are singing it to the final and true king of Israel, who we now know as the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at this psalm as the coronation song of Christ. It's beautiful. As the coronation song of Jesus, because that's what it is. A song sung over Christ after his ascension to heaven. After Christ has done his work of redemption and ascends to heaven and is crowned king of kings, this song is sung to him and it declares his majesty and his glory and his reign and his victory. So I hope that this makes us rejoice over our reigning king as we consider this. This is the coronation psalm of Christ. But verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the first thing that the Father says to the Lord Jesus after he completes his work of redemption for his people and ascends to heaven is sit. Sit down. To sit implies rest from work. Rest from your labors. The first thing Jesus hears from his Father is sit down. After the Lord Jesus had accomplished the work of redemption for his people, after living a life of perfect obedience in our place and dying for the sins of his people and being raised again on behalf of his people, the work is over. 
He's told to sit down. He is seated. We call this the session of Christ. The work is over. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, the second half says, After making purification for sin, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love that. He sat down. Christ has accomplished salvation for all who would ever trust in him. And it's as if in this first verse that God is saying to Christ, Rest now, my son, and reign forever. Rest now. And I was just thinking as I was writing this, what a blessing it is for us to read where Jesus on the cross, before he gives up his spirit, says, It is finished. And then we read here in verse 1 where the Father says, Yes, it is, my son, now sit down. Beautiful. Sit down and rule. And where is Jesus seated? At the right hand of God. The supreme position reserved only for Christ. And this should remind us, see, being seated at the right hand of God, being God's operative right hand, reminds us that Jesus is the unique one. The only begotten Son of God. That there is none like Him. That He is the monogenes, right? The only begotten, the special one, the unique one. And He has a special relationship to the Father that no one has ever had aside from Him. And no one will ever have except for Him. This is His uniqueness seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the right hand of the Father is the position of authority. It is the position of kingship and glory, and power, and honor. So after his living and suffering, Christ is put in this position to reign. The unique one, the special one, with all glory and authority and power. After his living and suffering, Christ is to never again be disrespected. You ever think about that? Like how much our Lord was disrespected, and how much he suffered while doing his earthly ministry, but now seated at the right hand of the Father where he is praised and blessed forever. Never again to be struck by sinful, wicked men. Never to be blasphemed to his face again by an unbeliever. But he has been crowned. King of all things. After his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus says in Matthew 28, he came to them and says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am king now. And Christ is reigning even now and forevermore. But what of the enemies of Christ? Right? What about his enemies? In this text, the last, the last bit of verse 1 would make us say sarcastically, yeah, what about them? Right? What about his enemies? It says they are being conquered. And they all will be conquered someday. That the enemies of Christ will be made into his footstool. That's some powerful imagery. His footstool. That his reign is uncontested. That Jesus Christ is the only true king with divine power and divine right to rule. Now the footstool, I thought this was cool. In ancient times, whenever a king would conquer a people... Right? Whenever a king would go in, and whether he was putting rebellion down amongst his own people or whether he was conquering a new people that, that, that opposed him, after winning, he would step on their heads and necks right? of those whom he conquered. It's a humiliating thing. They're in complete subjection to this king. He's stepping on their heads. Right? So to be made a footstool then means that all who oppose Jesus will be, in the end, put into subjection under him. Whether willingly, when they're converted by the gospel of grace, 
and they come to Christ and they bow the knee to him, or whether he forces them by his divine power to recognize his kingship, all will bow to him. But his enemies will be made into his footstool. And this means all of his enemies. Satan himself, demonic powers, kings who think that, it, that with their authority as king that God has given them, that they might oppose him. Or just regular foolish men who rebel against their king Jesus. Everyone, all of his enemies will be, will be made into a footstool. Christ reigns supreme over everything. And I just want to make a note here and we'll pick it up at the end. Christ has been crowned eternal king. And this should comfort the Christian through all of our days, through all of our trials, through everything. Because whatever, regardless of whatever else might be going on in your life, Christ sits enthroned. That is a constant. That cannot change. God, God himself says, rule until I make everyone your footstool. Christ will never be dethroned. He is king forever. And that should encourage you, Christian. But next we come to see... Where Christ will rule. Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So whenever it says the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, what he's saying is that Christ's kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, is to extend far past Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel. Right? I'm not making a political thing whenever I say that. I mean, like, historically, it was the capital of Israel. Don't worry. That was funny. Come on. Some Republicans in the room don't think that's funny. Anyway, but Christ's kingdom is to extend far past Zion. It's, it's to extend far past Israel is, is, is the point. That his rule, his reign, his scepter, right, symbolically his power is to go out to the ends of the earth is what the psalmist is saying. Far past Jerusalem. We see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus tells his uh, apostles that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That they're going to take this gospel, this message of what Christ has done to make atonement for his people, that Christ now reigns as king, and they're going to take it all over the globe. And this is God's declaration. That this scepter that is to extend from Israel and go out everywhere else is, to, is, is, is the gospel. God's going to send the gospel out and it's going to reach everywhere, far beyond Israel. But if Christ, here's a question for you, if Christ is enthroned in heaven, how does his rule extend throughout the earth? Right? Christ is the God-man, but he is confined to like a human body. So how is Christ said to rule over the earth if he is enthroned in heaven right now? I'm not, saying, I'm not denying the omnipresence of Christ. Don't get me wrong on that. But like how is Christ going to rule throughout the earth whenever he is enthroned in heaven? The answer is the church. The church is the rule of Christ on earth. The church is the visible kingdom of Christ on earth. Not a political kingdom. Jesus Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world, but a spiritual kingdom made up of believers. Right? Now Christ reigns in the hearts of his people as we love and obey him. Right? Those who are converted, Christ reigns over us, and we are the visible representation of this spiritual reality that Christ reigns everywhere. And one day, this is beautiful, this will become a physical reality too. Whenever the Lord Jesus returns to rule physically, visibly over new heavens and the new earth. Now this should encourage us that, Christ, that the church is the visible representation of Christ reigning and that Christ rules all over the world. This tells us that the reign of Christ is unstoppable. Absolutely unstoppable. Wherever the church is, 
There Christ is, ruling in the midst of his enemies. And by his enemies, we mean the world, ruling in the midst of satanic forces, people who oppose him. There is Christ reigning in the midst of them through his church. This means that the church prevails. So long as Christ is king of all, the church cannot be conquered by his enemies. And he is the eternal king who cannot be dethroned. So the church prevails. And the church will continue to extend far and wide until every tribe, tongue, and nation is reached with the gospel. Right? This is a certainty for us. That the church will continue to expand and continue to expand. And that Christ's rule will continue to extend. And this is a certainty for the Christian because his reign is extended by divine appointment. The beginning of verse 2 says, Yahweh sends forth your mighty scepter. God himself sends forth this gospel so that Christ might reign everywhere. It's infallibly going to happen. So Christ is going to rule on this earth as people hear his gospel and are converted and brought into his kingdom. But then something is then spoken of the people that Christ is going to rule over. right? How they're going to come, what they're going to do, and their number. Right? In verse 3, something is said about the people of God. People who Christ is going to rule over. Your people, I mean Christ's people, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. First thing, how do they offer themselves? Christ's people, they come. How do they come to him? They offer themselves freely to him. Freely. Gladly. The language is that of a free will offering under the old covenant. Gladly loving their newfound king. Offering themselves freely in sweet submission to the Savior of their souls. Once these people were rebels against Christ, but now through faith in him, they've been granted amnesty and they have been made willing to lovingly submit to his rule and his reign over them. Christ's people, do you not, Christian, do you not offer yourself freely to the Lord Jesus? You do. You've been made willing. And how beautiful it is to read that Christ will not have to conquer his subjects. Christ will conquer his enemies. But Christ does not conquer his subjects with force. But rather, he has conquered us, Christian, by his love and his kindness toward us, hasn't he not? We hear this beautiful message of the gospel where he gave his life up for us and lived in our place and done all of this. And then we freely respond by the grace of the Holy Spirit working in us. We want him. His Holy Spirit has made us willing to be ruled over. And this is fitting for the king of love. That he would have a people who sincerely love him in return. This is what he deserves. And this is what his people will do. We're also told in this verse that Christ's people offer themselves in holy garments. Which is another way to say priest's clothes. In the clothing of a priest. So symbolically it means that Christ's people offer themselves to give sacrifice to Christ. They offer themselves in holiness. To be a people who seek to honor Christ as holy. Because he is holy. They offer themselves to Christ to do whatever their Lord and their King would ask of them. To offer their lives as a living sacrifice to Jesus. I want to make a note here on this too. Christ's people are a holy people in spotless priestly garments because Christ has made them clean. And Christ has clothed them with his own righteousness. 
Christ, the great high priest that we're about to see here in a second, has given us priestly robes to wear that we might enlist into his service wearing the uniform that we should that looks like him, spotless, that he has given. Christ is king over a spotless people because he has cleansed them of their sin. The holiness that they offer themselves to him in is because of him. In Christ's people, their number, the second half of this third verse is actually the Hebrew is really, really strange, but the best that we can understand about it is that it's telling us that Christ's people are going to be innumerable. Vast, myriads upon myriads, as numerous as the dew of the field in the morning the dew of your youth, constantly being renewed in their number day after day. People keep coming to Christ. Innumerable people. That multitudes of people from the time that Christ begins to rule and the day of his power, they will willingly enlist themselves into the service of Christ as a holy nation of priests to him. It is beautiful and fitting For us to read and see that Christ will have a people like this. Think about who he is. Is it not fitting that he would have a people like this? A people who love him. A people who are holy. A people who are an untold multitude. Christ will have this people. He will have them. He will have the fullness of the reward for his suffering. He will have this bride, an innumerable bride, a holy bride that loves him as he has loved them first. I want you to see, as you consider that verse 3, I want you to see the reward and glory of your king. Verses 2 and 3, he rules over a kingdom with a people unopposed as the eternal king. But not only is he king of his people, he is also priest for his people. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that seems like a very strange verse for most people, I would assume. So we're going to have to break this one down. Uh, in our day and age, it doesn't seem that poetic to us right off the bat, but it really is. Uh, some people argue this is the centerpiece of the entire psalm. But most of us don't understand this verse, or it seems weird to us because we're not familiar with Melchizedek, which is the most fun name. You should name your kid that if you're pregnant. I'm just saying that. Deborah, don't name him Dean. Melchizedek. That's how we're going to do it. But you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So let's look, at, let's, let's look real quick. Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Uh, we're going to look real fast at the one passage that is about Melchizedek in the Old Testament that we can find, or that I, that I know of at least. And let's see what God is symbolically saying about Jesus once we understand what was said about Melchizedek. Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High, or of God Most High. And he blessed him, meaning Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so what we see here, just to break that down real quick. You got to know Hebrew to know this, and I don't, but I got commentaries that do. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's the first thing to know. His name itself means king of righteousness. Second, 
He is king of Salem, which means king of peace. Third, we see Abraham, who is the spiritual father of all believers. Right, Christian, you're a descendant of Abraham, spiritually speaking. Jews, the people of God under the old covenant, Abraham's descendants. Right, Abraham is the father of all believers, and we read that Abraham gave tithe to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of everything that he had, meaning that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, who is the patriarch of all of the people of God. Melchizedek's greater than him. The, the lesser one pays tithes to the greater one. And then fourth, lastly, we see that Melchizedek is priest of God Most High, which is one of God's actual titles, God Most High. So in verse 4 of this psalm, we see that God the Father has sworn and will never revoke. He will never change his mind. There is no going back on this. He has spoken something over Christ that will never change, and it is this. He is king of righteousness. He is king of peace. He is greater than all men. If he's greater than Abram, he's greater than all men. And he is priest to God on behalf of his people. That's what it means to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus Christ is the priest king. The priest king. That he is the unique one. Again, there is no other king like this. He is the only king like this. He is a priest in the sense that he offered himself. Right? Not only was he the priest, the, the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. He's the priest who offers himself to God on the cross as the once-for-all sacrifice to take away the sins of his people and to satisfy the wrath of God that hung over our heads as sinners. In that sense, he's priest. And here we read that he is priest forever for us, the eternal priest, meaning he will not have a successor. He will not have a successor. There will be no other priests after Christ. The Levitical priesthood is over Christ is priest now who never dies who will never have a successor meaning there is no more need to offer sacrifices once this priest has offered sacrifice his sacrifice was enough to save all of his people and now he lives forever as our great high priest to intercede on our behalf forever to make our works our prayers, everything that we offer to God acceptable because Christ, the great high priest, the mediator between God and men, takes the works of his people and presents them to his Father and makes them acceptable. Our priest forever. And one last thing about the priest king before we go on. I just put this in at the end. I didn't know how to make this fit. This is beautiful. Under Old Testament law, kings could not be priests. Couldn't do it. God actually removed a couple of kings from the office of king because they tried to act like priests. And likewise, priests could not be kings. The king of Israel was meant to represent God to his people, ruling in righteousness and authority over them. And priests represented the people to God as mediator, as their go-between for the forgiveness of sins and so on and so forth. But now... God has chosen to unite these two offices in his son, the God-man. Our king priest, Jesus. Christ, our authority. And Christ, our mediator. The king priest forever, the God-man. Beautiful.
But now we come to our, our last three verses. We're going to take them all together. And these verses tell us of our king's future conquest, his future judgment, and his future victory over his enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is one of the most sober verses that we've read through the Psalms. This is a bloody picture of the day of the wrath of our conquering king. It's a gory picture. It's a picture of his return to judge the nations. It's a reminder to us and a warning for the unbeliever that Jesus will return with all the power of God at his right hand. The Lord is at your right hand. And all earthly powers will fall under his wrath. All of the kingdoms and nations and rulers who rejected Christ will be overcome by his vengeance. John in Revelation calls it the wrath of the Lamb. At his first coming, Jesus Christ came as a suffering servant, but now we read that he returns as a conquering king to make war on his enemies. Now this is a gory picture for us to see, but it's one that we need to see. To see that those who rejected the the reign of King Jesus will have their heads shattered and the nations will be filled with their corpses. This is a Jesus no one wants to see. You don't want to be on the receiving end of the wrath of the Lamb. Often we forget this aspect of Christ and we only remember the suffering servant and we forget the conquering King. This will be a terrible day filled with wrath as Christ executes judgments on the, on the nations and casts unrepentant sinners to hell. While enthroned, but know this, while enthroned currently, King Jesus offers pardon and the forgiveness of sins to all who will gladly repent and trust in Him and offer themselves freely to Him as we read in verse 3. But when He descends from His throne, we read in Revelation 19, from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. When he returns, he must reign, and all who reject him must perish. And at the last verse of this passage, verse 7 tells us, he will drink from the brook by the way. Meaning by the way, as he goes through judging. As he goes through the nations, it's symbolic language. As he goes through the nations judging, he will drink water from their territory, meaning I have conquered you. I am, in enemy gr- I am on enemy ground, but it's mine now. He will drink from the brook by the way. He will drink and refresh himself in enemy territory as he goes, and he will continue the slaughter of his enemies until there are none left. Drinking from the brook, by the way, means he's not stopping to rest. That the Lord Jesus will not relent in his judgments until it's done. 
Until the judgment is over, he will not relent. And because he will judge all until it's finished, we read that last piece of verse 7, therefore, he will lift up his head. Meaning, implying, he will lift up his head in victory. With his head high, as the king who has conquered. Once before, he hung his head in death, but now he raises it as the conquering priest king who has finally subjected all things to himself to reign unopposed with his people for eternity. Behold your king. This is your king, Christian. The one who lived, died, and was raised again and now lives forevermore. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who is seated at the right hand of God. The one whose kingdom expands and knows no end. The one whose people love Him. The one who is an eternal priest forever. The one who puts down all rebellion and gains the victory. This is our King. This is our King. We do not serve a figment of our imagination as many unbelievers would claim that we do, but we serve a reigning king. This is our king. See him. And I don't really have application for you guys this evening. I have a little bit more to say, but it's more like encouragements for us. Not really anything for you to go and do necessarily, except for the very last one. But encouragements for you. Things for us to think on and rejoice in. And the first is this. Christ is king forever. <laughs> He's king forever. Often we see so much bad in the world that we fall into despair and we feel like everything is out of control. You guys ever turn on the news and you just get that pit in your gut and you're like, this is going to hell. This is awful. And you think that everything's out of control. And everything's always changing and you don't know what's going to happen. And that can drive you to feel hopeless. And as if you have no bearings, you have nothing, you have like no earth under your feet to stand firm on. But the truth that Christ rules over everything as king is a constant. There's your centering place. Christ is still king. Christ will never be dethroned. I have pledged allegiance to a king and a kingdom that will never be shaken. And that's peace for you, Christian, to know that Christ reigns regardless of what we see, regardless of where we're at. Your king reigns and will never be dethroned. The second is this, encouragement for you. Christ is priest forever. Christ is priest forever. In his suffering and death, he offered himself once for all sin as the sacrifice for his people to take away our sins, and he now lives forever to intercede for us. In a nutshell, what I'm saying, Christian, you are saved. You are saved. Since he will never be removed as our great high priest, our salvation is safe and secure in him. He will not be removed. You will never face his wrath. It's peace for us to know him as priests. And then last, this was beautiful to me. Christ will receive everything that he deserves. Everything. 
that he deserves. The suffering servant will receive everything that he deserves. He is enthroned. He has a willing people that are innumerable. His rule extends throughout the world and one day all of his enemies will be conquered by Christ and he will be the eternal victor. Our king receives everything that he deserves. This ought to make your heart swell with joy whenever you consider the sufferings of Christ and now his subsequent glory. He has done more than we will ever know and he will receive an equal measure for his work. Praise be to Christ. His praise and dominion will continue forever. He will forever be praised and exalted by his people as Savior, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings, the Holy One of Israel. Forever. Nothing will ever change it. He will receive the fullness of his reward and praise God for it. May we rejoice for our King. And find comfort and be encouraged by his dominion. Let's pray. Most high God, we thank you. We thank you for giving such a king to us. We thank you for enthroning your son. For doing everything that that psalm says. We thank you for his priesthood on our behalf. We thank you for his kingship and dominion over us and over everything. We thank you for his future victory, for the fact that the church will prevail so long as Christ is enthroned. We thank you that, he will make, that you will make all of his enemies his footstool. Christ, may you be glorified in our lives as the king that you are. That we would honor you that we would love you and offer ourselves freely to you in holy garments. That we would see you as king. That we would rejoice for you. For being glorified and being in a place of dominion, the place of dominion and glory and power. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Christ as he is. Our reigning king. Bless us now as we worship and bless us in the week to come that we might never forget our King, our, our enthroned King. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.